Welcome to the latest episode of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your co-host, Matt Zemek, along with Saqib Ali. So, Miami's over. We're a lot to talk about, about the two tours, about Carlos Alcaraz and Iga Swiatek, and a whole lot more. And our guest is uh, in-house contributor and analyst, Skip Schwartzman. You can follow him on Twitter at uh, TennisSkip1515. Uh, always delighted to have Skip Schwartzman's uh, analysis and insight on the world of tennis. So a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about the state of the tours uh, before the transition to clay, which of course begins with Charleston and Houston this week. But of course, you know, the, the, the full meal uh, really gets going later in April with Monte Carlo and um, a, a lot to say about clay season. But before that, Alcaraz Shiontech, the future is now, or at least if it's not now, it's a heck of a lot closer uh, to the present moment and uh, the, the days of oldsters uh, dominating tennis tournaments. I mean, we, we did see Rafael Nadal uh, have a wonderful uh, first two and a half months uh, in 2022, but Miami was for the youngsters. And so Skip, uh, just the, the basic question I have to start us all off is with Alcaraz. And that is, you know, how much do we uh, assign to, his own brilliance, his own genius, his own ability to put everything together mentally as well as physically and tactically at age 18. And how much do we put this to ATP tour is a mess and there's a vacuum. There's a, there's a real uh, opportunity for a lot of people, you know, to slide into quarters, semis, finals of big tournaments. How, how would you assess that particular tension point? Um, I would say that Carlos Akaraz at 18 is, if not the most mature player I've seen at 18 years old on either tour in 50 years plus of watching tennis, then he's among a group of three or four. I was astounded in the final yesterday. The, the, my one sentence, short one sentence summary of the final, thinking about it while watching was just too many more tools. There really was is very little difference, relatively little difference between the two players if you look at forehands and backhands. But how Alcaraz uses them and the forecourt, as well as the serve, obviously, uh, is really pretty astounding for somebody who's 18. Well, it's pretty astounding for somebody, period, because he does exhibit an extremely mature game tactically. But for somebody who's 18, it's just gobsmacking. It, I, just, I, I think it's astounding. So I, I don't think it's hype in that respect. Whether or not holes in his game or attackable areas will come out as he starts playing more players more often at the uppermost regions, you know, finding the latter stages of more tournaments remains to be seen, but it's not obvious what those holes <clears throat> or weaknesses are going to be at this point. I, I was, like everybody else, pretty, pretty astounded. Does that answer your question? Uh, I know Slotkin, 
I know Saka will want to jump in with his own questions and, and that, that he'll do that shortly. But my main follow-up is when I looked at that match, I saw Rude getting off to a really good start. Uh, and, and, you know, he let Alcaraz make some mistakes. Alcaraz was shaky at, at the very beginning, as one would expect. Uh, Rude, Rude was hitting a pretty hard forehand, but wasn't playing with, uh, you know, he wasn't trying to cut it too finely. Like he was playing well inside the court. He was playing percentage tennis. I mean, he was, he was hitting the ball hard, but he wasn't aiming for the corners, not from what I saw. And that after the, after the big start, uh, Rude reminded me, uh, you know, as he deteriorated in the first set, uh, and I know that Alcaraz, you know, did turn it on and did improve. And there's no question about that. But, boy, I saw Rude hit a lot of shots running forehands, you know, from the alleys that he would go for broke. And it was, just wasn't the time to pull the trigger. It was a time to reset the point. And I just kept thinking about Joe Wilfred Sanga. Like, that's a shot that Sanga would hit so many times. Instead of just resetting the point, he would hit the, the, the go for broke shot from the alleys, from the corners of the court. And it just seems as though Rude lost patience, uh, lost trust in his game. And that's something you never see with Alcaraz, that, that even if he's behind, the belief's there, the confidence is there, the clarity is there. Uh, he's you know fully in command of everything that he's doing. And I didn't see the same thing from Rude. So it leads me, Skip, to this point, and you can weigh in on it. Obviously, Alcaraz has more tools than rude. I don't think people would disagree with that. I don't disagree with that, but I got the sense from the commentary in some corners on Twitter, you know, the, the various people I was following, uh, commenting on the match. I got the sense that they felt that, well, there was just nothing rude to do. You know, there was no place for him to go. Just, you know, Alcaraz was Alcaraz's rise in the first set and over the course of the match was inevitable. And I'm not really, buying into that, but I, I'd be interested in your thoughts uh, on that particular uh, way to look at that match. Yeah, I think first of all, to hard fact that something that you said earlier that the ATP tour is a mess, I think one thing that we need to uh, establish is that what we've seen for the past almost 20 years since 2003 with Federer's beginning is a dominance by the big three plus Murray that is simply the outlier. It is not, however much accustomed we've come to it, it's simply not the way tennis has been leading up to that. If you look at the one loss records of the players who dominated, and I put that in quotation marks, the game earlier, they simply didn't have years like any of those three, or Murray in 2016, you know, had, and there certainly weren't three of them at any one time having years like that. So the idea that that the ATP tour is a shambles, and I, I, I certainly haven't seen you say that, Matt, and or Sakib, and I haven't seen anybody else, but I'm not following as many people as you are, but it's really more that people who are saying that are only looking at the most recent playing uh, outcomes on the ATP tour and forgetting what the tour really has been like prior to that. And I believe strongly that the 
tour is about to resort is, is about to retreat to the mean of the competitive landscape of your prior to the big three it's an outlier you're going to see you know you're going to see sam you're going to see a sampras like player who's going to be the dominant player it may be Alcaraz, it may not you know who is occasionally going to lose in the second round and we really haven't seen that to such a great degree with these three and murray i i, I can't quite make it the big four but so i i think that that's one thing that i, I don't see the atp tour being a shambles i think it's more that we've had this unbelievable run of dominance of those players it doesn't i don't nobody listening to this needs me to recount how they've dominated everybody knows it it's not going to continue and and so expecting it to continue and calling it failure to continue a shambles i think is a mistake in terms of what rude was able to do to alcaraz i think that it was I saw Ruth play Cam Nori on Tuesday. And I really thought Rude was more of a clay quarter than what I saw him do on hard courts on Tuesday and what we saw him do in the beginning of the match on Sunday. He was taking the ball earlier. Uh, he was uh, being more aggressive in shot selection without necessarily hitting the lines, as you said, I agree. Uh, and I think that what happened is that when he maybe he came off the boil a little bit and certainly Alcaraz got his nerves settled instead of doubling down on being a hardcore player at that point it's my feeling that Rude kind of re retracted to being a clay court player um, and too often felt like keeping the ball in play and waiting for a mistake was, was the way to go. While at the same time, having some of those four hands down the line that you're talking about, Matt, which I believe is credit to Alcaraz. One of the reasons that you do that kind of thing and you don't reset the point is you don't trust that you can really reset the point because the other person's playing so well. To, to, to flip the coin on Pete Bodo's phrase, you know, Pete said you can all, or wrote, you can only play as well as the other fellow lets you. And if the other fellow is not letting you play very well and you have this slim opening to try and finish a point, you can be too tempted or you could fall prey to the temptation to try and end the point when it's really not there. And I suspect that it's more a matter of that. Like he had nowhere else to go, as you say, and fell prey to it, how easy it would have been for me to get out of it. I think the answer to that is he had to be more assertive, not aggressive, but assertive earlier in those points so that he didn't find himself in that situation. Having said that, Alcaraz just threw so many different things at him. Second serve, serve and volley, the drop shots, he volleys crisply. And of course, his play from the, from the back of the court is so strong. I thought Rude did a very good job of trying to adapt to it, but still needs to do more to be a more effective hardcore player. That would be my sense of it all in all. Nice. So there's a, a lot of food for thought, even in Matt's questions and your responses. So I'm going to borrow, you know, the first question from Matt and just uh, consider this as an extension to it. What you gave a response, like in your 50 years of watching, you know, he has to be on a very small short list of teenagers who were so ready. 
And you know, as evolution of the game goes on, uh, a 17 year old Becker was playing a very physically demanding tennis, but tennis has become even more physical since 1985. It's not even the same sport. So what is more impressive for you, Skip? Uh, is it, uh, I mean, this, of course, is match readiness to win these big titles and Martina saying he's going to be one of the top favorites at Roland Garros. So what's the big part here? Is it the physical part, which is, uh, you know, the, the name of the game now, everybody has to run from side to side and uh, has to be very fit. Or is it the uh, mental part, like as Matt always says, inner game? Uh, what is, uh, uh, which department is he checking ahead of his years more? compared to, say, a Yannick Sinner, who you saw in your stay in Miami while you were at the tournament. So what, what, what is this so distinct about Alcaraz uh, that we have to put him in the Becker, Chang, and Nadal category, or Villander? You know, I think it has to be, it's mental. I don't think, I think when you look at a player like um, uh, Aslan Karasov, you realize that the distinction between how the ball gets hit between the challenger level and the main tour or the upper tiers of the main tour, it's not really that great. It's a matter of whether or not they make the shot. <laughs> and making the shot is really not a matter of technique. It's a matter of your, your mental attitude and how you approach it. Are you trying not to miss or you feel confident that you can make the shot? And I'm not talking about winners. Uh, as I've said to you, and Matt, in the past, I worked for Mr. Frank Brennan Sr., who was Billie Jean King's coach. And Mr. Brennan taught us, and I return to this all the time, that the players who are at the top are not there because of the shots they make, but because of the shots they don't miss. And that really is a mental thing. It's not, it's not technical. There are too many variations of technique in tennis to believe that's all a matter of technique. So. If you ask me what I think is strongest about Akaraz, it's that he brings an incredible competitive maturity to the game at 18 years old. His, his, it's, it's not just unflappability because I saw Sinner be unflappable against Kyrgios and Lloyd knows that Nick threw enough into the pot or into the center of the table in that match that for Sinner to have been upended by it would not have been terribly surprising. Alcaraz just has just through so much of his own in terms of his shot selection, in terms of the tactics that he was employing, and all with a very even, calm demeanor. That I, I would answer your question and say it's it's absolutely positively the mental aspect of it. Mental sure, slash emotional. Uh, absolutely, and that brings me to my follow, which again is not for Alcaraz, so the man he played in the final, Kasparud who's also trending, you know, because the hype and, and rightful hype on Twitter for Alcaraz is, is so high that uh, it's easy to kind of dismiss the progress Casper Ruud has made in the last, say, 15 months. And of course, people who know their tennis on Twitter don't do that, but it's just, uh, you know, it's the name of the game. Alcaraz is the next best thing in media and fans, everybody. It's like a planet being discovered and I'm fine with it. You know, he, he has the goods. But let's spare a thought for Kasper Ruud. He won a lot of titles in clay last year. Me and Matt have talked about him in spaces. Came into Roland Garros. Expected to do well. So what is his progress support card looking for you after you had some looks at him in Miami? Uh, and he also, you know, has a good forehand. Can dictate points in clay. And use this as a segue of what's coming up. Where do you put him 
after you've seen him? I know you don't do those projection charts, but how impressed are you with this guy? <laughs> I was surprised at how hardcore adept Rude was when I saw him, number one. So I think he's come quite a way. And number two, I saw him play Cam Nori. And as, as I was sitting there, I thought, you know, this is kind of a tough match for Cam Nori. He's had a very good year so far. He's notched some important wins. And yet he's number 12 in the world. And Cam Nori at the time was, uh, let me look at my notes here. Nori was eight. And on the basis of who's trending upwards, you would expect Nori to win this match. But by the ranking, it should be Casper Rude. And then I looked a little further later after the during the final yesterday. You know, Casper Rude's got seven titles to his name. And Alcaraz has two. Now we can, it's true that Casper Ruud got to where he is in the rankings through a number of wins at the 250 level. But, you know, attorney win is attorney win. And it means a lot. So the idea that somehow he's a flash in the pan, you don't get to eight in the world by only winning 250s. And I, as I said, I, I was, I was impressed impressed with his hardcore play. I expected him to be more, I hadn't seen a whole lot of him prior to seeing him play live on Tuesday. I, I hadn't expected him to be quite so uh, assertive and, and to use the, the forecourt as frequently as he did, which I think is generally a trend among these guys. We certainly saw it yesterday. I mean, Alcaraz was in fairly often, all in all, relative to what we've become accustomed to. I expect that he's going to his favorite surface to clay um i don't know if he's in the draw in houston or not but and i would expect that we're going to see him continue his dominance there or dominant or continue his strong play there the other thing that i wanted to mention is that yesterday it's always a pleasure i find to listen to jim courier among commentators courier commented that ruth's producing more rpms on his backhand than anybody else on tour off their backhand so he clearly can crack the forehand and perhaps the ultimate MPH on the forehand are greater than the backhand, but RPMs are a pretty valuable weapon in and of themselves. And he does have that on the backhand side, assuming Courier was right, which I do. So Alcaraz probably is producing more outright oomph on either side, but it's not as if he was playing somebody who had a clearly weaker side on the on his backhand side against Rude. Um, I just I, I think that really it ended up yesterday's match ended up being as I said too many tools for Alcaraz. I expect Rude is going to add to his tools, and I, I think Alcaraz is playing with just a better competitive, just an amazingly complete competitive mindset at this point, and Rude. Those, those 250 wins notwithstanding, you combine a hot kid, and there's one other point here that, that occurred to me, but combine a hot player uh, and who has more tools and it's not your favorite service and you're trying to, you're, you're being a little bit lost at sea is not surprising. The other thing is this, it, 
similar to the Australian being named or being termed, you know, the, the Grand Slam of the Pacific or of the of the, the Orient or of Asia. Miami's been called the tournament, you know, for South America. And we should not discount the support that Alcaraz had as a Spanish speaker in that final yesterday. Not a lot of Norwegians in Miami for rude. And the, the, you could hear it in the crowd yesterday, walking around the tournament. It's not just a matter of Miami being a town where a lot of Spanish is spoken. There were a lot of people there who were from outside of Miami, evidently, who come in for the tournament up from Central and South America. And so there's a, uh, Alcaraz was supported in a way that you would expect a hometown quote unquote player to be, which adds to the weight that a player in Rude's position has to you know, push against or, or resist. Does that answer your question? I, I, would, I, I don't think Rude's gonna go out and win 500 or I don't think, I don't expect Rude to win Monte Carlo, but uh, I would, would not be surprised at all to see him in quarters multiple times over the course of the next few months and conceivably better. Skip, well, in, in seeing, you know, Alcaraz delivering a very complete game and a very complete way of playing, what's the message to the rest of the locker room on the ATP? Like, and I know that the answer to this will differ, you know, based on whether you're Stefano Tsitsipas and Alexander Zverev or whether you're, uh, you know, world number 55 or whether you're world number 110, but is there like a unifying theme or message that ATP professionals more broadly, and of course, you know, not the big three, they've already been there, done that. What, what, is there like a, a broader message that, that players in the locker room can take from Alcaraz uh, in terms of how they can develop their game and respond in ways that you know, up the raise their level because when we when we see greatness, like that's a call to, okay, I have to do something more. I have to do something new. I can't I can't stay in the same place because uh, stasis is is defeating. What's the message for the ATP locker room? I don't know that there's a message from Alcaraz explicitly in the in the ATP locker room. I had an exchange with someone with Roe the other day, and I said that looking at Alcaraz, we, we were, the, the, the question was relative to Nadal, it's just, it doesn't have to always be considered relative to Nadal, but in this case, and one of the things that I added to the conversation is that, you know, when Nadal came on tour, the introduction of a forehand with so many RPMs was really brand new and was a, a, a new, just a new thing. And from there you get Kyle Edmonds forehand and Jack Sox forehand that, that were really a, a sea, it's not a sea change, but, but significantly different than what we had seen before. At this point, Alcaraz doesn't, isn't bringing that kind of thing to the game. But I think he's bringing to the game, but he's not the only one is an all-rounded an all-rounded game that um, a well-rounded game, I should say, all around the game that has been that is superseding the more uh, baseline oriented game that's that's 
been dominant for in many ways in the bread and butter aspects of the tour. These guys are coming in, they're understanding they need to shorten points, that the opportunity is there. They're using more slice uh, off the backhand and occasionally even off the forehand to set themselves up and coming into the net or as a bailout shot, you're seeing a ton of slice forehands as a reset point, as a reset shot. And why not? If a back, if a slice backhand works as a reset shot, why not a slice forehand? And I think that that's the thing that he and Sinner and Sitsipas uh, are showing at the moment that is changing how people are looking at the game. The, you read about the pushing for Zverev to be more assertive and not a grinder from the baseline and to come in more as part of being a more assertive. I mean, these are the messages I think that are being shared or taken in the locker room. I don't think they're all from Alcaraz. I don't know what you could take exclusively from Alcaraz unless you could, you know, get a blood transfusion from the guy and become 18 when you're already 22. I think it's really more a matter of, I need to have an all around game in order to compete going forward because there's less of a future starting out today and being Diego Schwartzman than there was four years ago. And that's not to take anything away from Diego Schwartzman. No, I think it's, it's definitely fascinating how, you know, Alcaraz and Matt, you know, is known to ask legit questions, but he's just even changing our, you know, toolkit in the, in the podcasting or, you know, uh, analytical question box, because he's that kind of a player we haven't seen to not to repeat myself, a teenager this ready. Uh, and of course, big three and Andy Murray, like you said, have a lot to do with it because even players who were ready were not ready because of, you know, uh, the inner game these guys displayed. Uh, and, um, you know, Nadal said something, I think, uh, in one of the tournaments he won with a reference to reference point to Alcaraz that what Matt said in the same way, but he said, now there'll be more pressure on the Medvedevs, Varevs, and Tsitsipas of the world because this next, next gen, if that's a word, seems more ready. I know it's just like the same question again and again, but I think uh, you can't just dodge this, uh, as a tennis fan, dodge this topic, not that, that any of us are dodging it here. I think it's definitely going to be a narrative. Uh, so that's what I noticed. But uh, Skip, you were also in Miami. And uh, so let's talk about that a bit before we s- switch to Iga Sriantek's win. Uh, you were there, you watched some Im- uh, important matches. Uh, you saw, I think, uh, a bit of Nick Kyrgios and Sinner. What were your takeaways from that match and your overall Miami experience? Um, sure. To start with the macro, I- I'm not the only person who felt that the their website needed better construction. It was ungainly. It was easy to go to miamiopen.com and buy tickets or book a hotel, but it was not so easy to find scores or to see the order of play. It was a matter of clicking through a few levels. Even when you click through levels for scores, you then were offered to go look at the ATP scores or the WTA scores, which seems silly to me. Why be a dual tournament and then bifurcate your results. It seems to me it should be the results of the tournament. And I think further that if tennis as a whole is looking to expand its fan base into a group that we would call more casual sports fans and not the dyed in the wool tennis fan, that kind of construction for your portal, your information portal is 
really counterproductive. And I think further that it would not be unreasonable for the ATP and the WTA to insist the tournaments under their banners, so that's therefore not the ITF tournaments, that the tournaments under their banners have some basic structure that is repeated from website to website, from tournament to tournament, so that player, so that fans can go to a tournament this week and find the information they want the same way they found the information last week. Now the graphics can change, and maybe the tournament's logo is on the left instead of on the right, or there certainly can be variation and individuality between tournaments. But the idea that I have to learn how to navigate a new site every time either tour moves to a new city seems counterproductive at the very least, if not worse than that. And I don't see that as being uh, in sync with the stated goals of, you'll see the expression, growing the game. I'm not a fan of the phrase, but we know what we mean of expanding the game. Similarly, having watched the tournament on TV, I still don't get how the either tour lets two players go out wearing the same kit. Every other sport in the world, opponents are wearing something different. And the idea that I'm watching two players who are both wearing the same Adidas or Nike, or who, it doesn't matter whose clothing it is, but they're wearing virtually the same thing it is just silly. How is the casual, how is that ever going to mean anything for the casual fan? I don't think we need players' names on the back of their jerseys, but I certainly don't think that I need them both wearing the same latest outfit that Lacoste or Adidas is trying to put out. The website uh, ungainliness followed through at the tournament site itself, in my experience. Driving up, trying to understand where to park was difficult. We pulled into one parking lot and they said, oh no, this is only for parking passes. If you don't have a pass, you have to go to lot 18. And we drove away thinking, well, why don't you have a sign up that says parking passes only instead of making us drive in and then we drive out. And then we drive up to parking lot 18 and you pull up and they say, oh, and it's credit card only, no cash. There's no sign that says credit card only. There's no sign on the website that says credit card only. There's no sign in the emails you get about your tickets about how it's credit card only. And yes, most people have credit cards or debit cards today, but not everybody comes prepared to do that. And to not announce it at a time seems anti-fan friendly to me. It was the same way inside the tournament. I would say that 99 about 100% of the various things I went to buy when I was there were credit card only purchases, not cash. Now that's fine for much of the population, but they're solar fans who don't operate their lives that way and not making it known at a time is kind of silly, as is the idea that every food stand I went to, the person behind the counter said to me, all right, now you can fill in, here's your credit card here and put in how much tip you want at the top. Every transaction had a tip option telling me how much 10, 15, 18 or 20% was. And every person behind the counter pointed out to me where the tip was. Being in the food business myself, I understand that if people are paying with a card in that situation, they're less likely to tip, but it was kind of pushy and not terribly friendly. And it was surprising. 
so that was my experience with the tournament. I also said that when I walked into the tournament, we had grandstand tickets, not stadium. And there was no signage that said grandstand this way. We found it by walking in, looking around, and there's a sign on the side of the stadium, which is not right in the center when you walk in, that said that it was the grandstand, but it was not a directional sign so much as it was just the name on the outside of the court. It's just that kind of thing, signage, that type of stuff seemed lacking to me. The facility was nice enough. Um, it was pretty, it was open. I'm sure that when there were more people there earlier in the week, it was a very lively place to be. But it, they really could do a lot, I think, to uh, improve the fan experience on site as well as on the website when they were there. Uh, I did enjoy the grandstand. It was a great place to see tennis. The Kyrgios Center match was exciting for a lot of reasons, not the least of which was the tennis for much of it, not all of it. And Kyrgios was, uh, you know, talking about uh, reverting to the mean. That's certainly what he did in the course of the tournament after a week or two of getting people excited that there was a noon to Kyrgios in town. I, I don't know. I, I, I may have strayed from your question there, Saka. No, we wanted to get we wanted to get your insights on the experience of of, uh, of watching Miami in person. So we got those. That's definitely part of uh, what we wanted you on here for. So Skip, uh, let's transition to the WTA and Iga Swiatek, and you know we can look at her larger rise, uh, winning the Sunshine Double. Uh, we can certainly talk about that. But I think the first and foremost. She took down Naomi Osaka. I think that's really the, 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 the headline grabber because, you know, we know that Osaka has four hardcourt majors to her name. And Sviantek, whose best surface is clay, she looked pretty darn comfortable on hardcourt against an elite hardcourt player. Uh, it seemed as though she was rushing Osaka, uh, taking away time. I mean, that's something Sviantek does so well. What, just, you know, what do you think the significance is specifically of beating Osaka, this elite hardcourt performer, uh, so comprehensively in a, in a significant hardcourt final. I think this is a spot where we can relate it back to our conversation about Alcaraz, and that's not to discuss the women in, in the context of the men, but you know, if, if the thing about Alcaraz is how mature he is, it's the same way with Suantec and, and, her, and her battle here with Osaka. I think you just have somebody who's much more up for the competitive fight and displays a greater competitive maturity. I was listening today to uh, the tennis podcast who, you know, they certainly have a great experience in watching tennis. And David Law commented that, and this was my feeling as well, that, you know, Osaka kind of wilted in the, in the situation he was looking for more fight and i think a lot of people expected the match to be much closer than it was um and in terms of the we can discuss the tools the two of them Sviantek certainly plays with greater margin she's got more spin on the ball she probably has more options as a result of that so when osaka was not really firing on all cylinders it left her a little bereft of of options perhaps, but the real thing is that it's a little bit like Billie Jean saying that she would find herself, you know, a uh, game point or uh, up or 
down. And at the beginning of the point, she said, I, you know, she would find herself saying, I, geez, I just love this. I think Shiantek loves that. I'm not so sure that Osaka loves it. And I think Carlos Alcaraz loves it. And those, and that's the mental side of it that is beyond forehands and backhands and Western versus semi-Western grips. You, you derive the occasion in those situations. You have to love the challenge. I'm not sure that I would. I don't mean to say that it's easy, but you have to love it. And the best players do. Some of them are introverts like Siontek. Some of them are extroverts like Nadal. Some of them fall somewhere in between Federer, perhaps Djokovic. Some of them are extroverts like Serena. Some of them are more introverted, like I'm trying to think of somebody like Barty. You know, everybody was surprised, not surprised, strong, too strong a word, but there were comments made about the roar that Barty let out when she won the Australian because it's not exactly what everyone expects from or expected from Ash Barty. So it's not a matter of you have to be a certain type of person to love the competition, but you have to love the competition. You have to be gutted by losing and fired up to do better the next time, whether you win or not, but to do better. And you have to revel in the chance and the opportunity and the final act of winning. And I think that's really what we saw is that Siontek just loves it. She still loves it. I'm not sure Osaka does the same in the same way. Yeah, I'll just get in there quickly and maybe you both can weigh in equally, Matt, as well. So, again, this is very early days of this rivalry and uh, ten, uh, the WT and tennis fans, including myself, everybody wants this to materialize because Osaka still, you know, is arguably a great mover and uh, the best hardcore player in the business and Iga, you know, dismantling her. I think uh, my takeaway was uh, Osaka, I think, uh, too, too great a player, but I think she did run out of either, you know, a plan B or... Uh, and I'm sure this this is going to serve as an important loss. I put this out on Twitter, but not people, not many people reacted to it because because her post match speech was like pretty like Osaka is back, and even her press conference was more uh, reassuring that you know this loss hurts. And if this had happened to a lower ranked player who Osaka would beat nine out of ten times, sometimes those matches are not that significant. But this is a potential rivalry post body era, and Osaka trying to get back to where she was like Matt said, on a hard court. So I think a couple of layers to this match for me. And not going the Steffi Graf, Monica Seles route because that rivalry was huge and established. But I felt like Osaka was just trying to find the plan A. But after being down 3-0, I don't know if you guys both noticed, it's not like checking out. She just didn't want to engage in longer rallies. And maybe next time when they play, she'll come back firing. But I felt this loss is going to be a significant you know, an indicator on how this rivalry shapes up. Matt, do you want to go first? I mean, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I think this is a very positive event for both players. I think that, uh, you know, Saka losing this match, like, like, it's not really a big dent to her confidence because after all that she's been through to make a Miami final, I mean, like that is kind of a, it's a reemergence for her. And Sviantek, you know, had played her way into form at Indian Wells. You know, she uh, won uh, three straight three setters after losing the first set in, in three straight matches in Indian Wells. 
And after getting through those three setters, well, then at the, the business end of that tournament, you know, she roared through the opposition and she just carried that form into Miami. So this was an elite player in form, feeling fully confident, riding the wave. And, uh, you know, to me, more than Alcaraz Rude, I think this was a match where, yes, the ascendant player gave the opponent uh, no place to go. And if Osaka was not hitting uh, unreturnable first serves, you know, and the, and the point got into any, any sort of rally, uh, Sviantec dominated. And, and the thing that was so obvious in that match is that Sviantec is taking the ball so early and she was just spitting the ball back so quickly that Osaka did not have time to react, didn't have time to set up her shots. That ball was just coming back, not just in terms of speed, but in terms of uh, just the time elapsed. So like not raw miles per hour, but, you know, Sviantec standing so close to the baseline and just flicking the ball back with her hand-eye coordination, her, uh, you know, the very fluid uh, wrist motion. Um, you know, Osaka does need time to hit the ball, and she was not given any time whatsoever. And, and so it, it was just a, a pattern of play in which Osaka was the fish out of water and Sviantec, uh was dictating. So when I say it's a positive event for both players, I think that, you know, Osaka got a big league education. Like, okay, if I'm going to, you know, really come back to being number one, uh, that's the standard of play that I need to adjust to, uh, that I need to, you know, adjust my game so that I have more answers ready so that I can get on top of points such that a player of Sviantec's caliber uh, isn't dictating. And, you know, we're going to get into a discussion of both tours entering play season, but I'm just going to inject this point on Osaka right now. Like she professed to be, you know, eager to get on clay and, and to do something on clay. If, if she does that, like that is a game changer for the WTA tour. I'm not expecting her to figure out clay this year, um, but it's, it's good to see her expressing a desire to want to figure this out. Um, you know, we're not going to see Daniil Medvedev on clay, at least for most of the season, maybe Rowan Garros at best given his injury situation, but to see Osaka, you know, wrestle with clay uh, and not have the on the off court uh, dramas uh, that we had last year, like that's a, that immediately becomes a, a top tier uh, plot point uh, for the WTA on clay. So that that's my read of the Osaka Triantec match. I you know I, I I will question, and I'm curious to know what the two of you think about this about what is. Naomi Osaka's plan B. Does she have a plan B? She said afterwards that her plan B was to hit the ball slower and get more balls in play, and she found that that uh, you know, didn't really work. Um, but I'm not sure what her plan B is, other than, and I'm not sure that hit the ball slower is you know, much of a plan B. I can see getting more balls in play, but if she's not hitting, if she's not hitting the ball heavy and through people, I'm not sure what her plan B is. And that's not to say you can't be successful doing that because there certainly are players who are that way. Petra Kvitova for one, or Maria Sharapova. Uh, but 
I, I'm still not sure what her plan B really is. It's not coming forwards. So yeah, T totally agree that if she's not if she's not crushing the ball, she's not winning matches. Right, exactly. And so it's going to be interesting to see what happens on clay, where crushing the ball and ending and ending points, you know, not not attrition. But is is not really the way that you're going to get forwards. You know, not, not, I'm, have success. I don't mean forwards as in forecourt of the, of the court. I, I think that's going to be a question. Uh, I think you're right, Matt. That that she needs time to set to set up. And you know, you you don't really take much pace off a of clay court. So there's not going to be a lot there for her to work with. I think you're absolutely right about Shantek taking the ball earlier when I worked. For my friend John Markson in England, he would always teach the kids, if you take the ball earlier, how much faster does it come back to the other player? Well, it comes back to the other player two meters faster because you take it a meter shorter. And of course, he was working in meters, but it, it, you take it a meter shorter on your side and it travels a meter less going back the other way. So that's how much faster a ball taken on the rise or early comes back to the other player and you're rushing them, continually rushing them. And it can make them feel like they can't breathe. And that's very much what happens. Uh, you need to have something to counter that. It can be rush the other person in response, but it can't just be rush them by crushing the ball because if crushing the ball were a way to win matches day in, day out, we'd have people crushing the ball at the top of the game all the time, and we don't. You know, please see full colon Ashley Barty. So... It's not just a matter of being able to crush the ball. There has to be other ways to react to someone who's rushing you. And I think that Osaka, I'm not sure what that is for her. Do I mean, you see that that way, Osaka, Matt? Uh, I'm way out of my depth if I <laughs> give it, if I give an opinion on a world-class player's, you know, tactics. And, you know, so, but I would definitely say I agree with both what, what you both said. And I felt the element is also the coach shrinks either one way is you getting rushed or either you start going for lines when you don't have to. So we've seen that in offensive versus, you know, great defensive battle, like say Federer Djokovic, a lot of time when Federer, like the 2015 US Open final, when Djokovic was not playing his best, Federer is trying to attack, but then when Djokovic tightens the defense up and Federer is missing. And this match was not even close in that regard because Osaka just didn't have that second level where she say, okay, I'm down, say love three, let me hold one and let's see how I break. Her, you know, or get the, you know, get get back in the match, uh, and make some scoreboard adjustments. But yeah, she, and you, I agree with you. She didn't have a plan. But I think next time when they play, outside of clay, I'll be very interested to see if uh, slightly tame, toned down offense can still get the job done. Because I think she has, she has the goods. Uh, I'm not selling her short yet. Uh, but I don't know, like you know, was she surprised with Shantek's level? At this level, there should be no surprises. Uh, was she surprised by the movement? Was she surprised what what's coming back? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm I'm at a loss of words. Matt can maybe explain this. Well, you know, just if if we're if Osaka is the discussion point, I mean, uh, I, I look at Osaka. I mean, obviously she has four majors, and and Stefano Tsitsipas doesn't have a major, so like we're not trying to draw an equivalent in terms of like what a career needs or what, how much a career has achieved. There's a big gulf between the two, you know, Sokka's already stacked the biggest titles in the sport, whereas Sitsipas hasn't, but 
one can draw a, a common thread between the two in that, you know, they need to add layers to their game. Uh, they need to, you know, find new combinations and patterns of play. Uh, they need to add something to the recipe, something to the pot uh, that gives opponents something new to think about. And there's been stagnation uh, in both of their games. So, like, the time is now. And coming coming into clay, like, we need to see something new. I know that Steph is a comfortable clay court player, whereas Osaka isn't. But with the rise of Alcaraz and with, you know, you know Rafa, of course, being uh, motivated to get number 22 in his 14th French, and, and you know, we'll see about how the, the politics of Novak Djokovic are sorted out. But, you know, th- th- if this is Steph's best surface, and yet it's hard to see him winning Roland Garros. He's going to have to bring more to the table. And so, you know, flipping that back to Osaka, you know, she wants to win at Roland Garros. And if she wants to figure out play, you know, she, she has to play in a different way. I mean, it, it can't just be the formula that works for her on hard courts. Now, you know, whether it's the use of a slice, whether it's the use of a drop shot, I mean, it's, it's less about the, the a one shot or one thing in isolation. It's more about, and this is something Skip talked about earlier, you know, use, being a well-rounded player, having various resources to call upon so that you can throw different looks at an opponent. Um, that's not been the way Naomi Osaka plays tennis. It's see ball, hit ball for the most part, you know, lean on your serve. But, you know, it's, it's the linear power baseline game, you know, just hitting the ball on a string, being able to run, uh, you know, in, in short bursts. Um, just, you know, behind the baseline, side to side, uh, it's a it's a geometrically more more limited game. But, you know, that is the way so much of the tour, both tours really, plays tennis these days that Osaka has been able to master it at a level others have not. But when we get to clay, you know, clay does involve, as we know, more spin, more geometry, uh, you know, differentiations in terms of coming into the baseline, but also on a court like Chatrier, uh, standing well behind the baseline as Rafael Nadal has been able to do, you know, making use of that physical real estate, the largest actual physical court in the world uh, to shape the ball in so many different ways. We see how it pays off for him. So, you know, it, it's a larger conversation about, okay, what, what new things are you going to bring to the table? That, that really is, a conversation that Clay invites in general, but it's specifically, uh, uh, it's a very specifically intense spotlight on Osaka and also Sitsipas. Well, yeah, I, I would agree with all of that. I mean, I think the other thing that Clay offers, it doesn't necessarily require angles, but, it, but if you're not going to be a player who opens up the court in a big way, you have to be a player who simply doesn't miss. And I'm not sure that's Osaka's wheelhouse either you know looking at who she played in miami she played sharma in the first round who i'm not familiar with she played kerber in the second round who is not a clay court player particularly she's really more of a hardcore player and uh, although certainly not a flat uh, player not off her forehand anyway she had a she had a walk over mukova uh she then played allison risk danielle collins 
She won both of those handily, three and four against Risk, two and one against Collins, both really hard court players. Risk really might even be called more of a grass court player. She's done well at Wimbledon. Uh, and then she played Benchich and she went three with Benchich and Benchich is less of a hardcore player. And, you know, she would tip more towards clay. I wouldn't say that she's a clay specialist by any stretch of the imagination, but she's clearly a player who's not depending entirely on hitting the ball on, on pounding the ball. And she is a player who tends to play in closer, not unlike Sriante. And so Osaka goes three with Benchich. She loses the first four, six. She then she goes three and four. And then, of course, she plays Fiontech. So there was something of a pattern there, I think, in terms of who she played and what styles she, she came up against. Uh, you know, conversely, you see Fiontech going through in Miami. Anyway, she plays Goldbitch in the first round. Uh, strong, not strongest. She wins two in love. Of course, Fiontech did this. Fiontech thing here where she she pretty much owned everybody but she played Brengel she played Goff she played Kvitova handled her her three and three she played Jessica Gula handled her two and five these are players who are essentially hardcore players certainly big hitters uh nobody maybe other than Golovich is really a, a, a player you think of as a clay court uh multi-shot making you know a, a, a player of a great variety across their shot making. And then she dealt with Osaka, who was again, you know, less multidimensional. And, and of course, we know that the score was foreign in love. So, yeah, I, I think we need to see a greater number of answers, more arrows in the quiver, so to speak, not to, to, for, for Osaka. And I think the same thing that we said about the men's score. I think they're seeing that they, they just need a more well-rounded, all-around game. Nobody needs to become service volumes necessarily but a more well-rounded game is becoming the is is on the is trending upwards as the way to play on both tours that's why all right Skip, let me let, let you know let's take this broader conversation we're having and apply it to specific players so as we let's delve into now the transition to clay season on both tours well, who's a player, one on each tour, WTA, ATP, that you're particularly interested in, that you're particularly focused on, that you think, you know, is going to be uniquely intriguing and central to the developmental arc of this tennis season, how this tennis season unfolds as we begin that two-month run-up to Roland Garros, followed by Wimbledon, uh, you know, really the busiest time of the whole tennis season. Um, you know, what, what, who's a player on each tour that Skip Schwartzman really is going to be looking at and studying for, uh, you know, as a central plot point to, to the 2022 tennis year? Uh, you're really putting me on the spot. Uh, <laughs> That's why I asked a long, multi-part question so that you could gather. Um, well, I, could, I can find and, a way out of it. And prepare. So, yeah. Uh, no, just well, to give you time, uh, like not wanting you the way Sviantec did to Osaka. I, um, I, I'm going to give you, if you, I, I know you only want an honest answer for me, so I won't start off with if you want an honest answer. But I have to tell you that the two players I'm most curious to see what happens with are, are Nadal and Sviantec. That's not, you, you didn't ask me who I think are the most up-and-coming players, and so I, I, I can duck that, that yeah. implicit, that, 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 that. So there's no, there's no wrong answer. It's just what you I, think. 
No, I know. I know there's no wrong answer. I, I, I am dying of curiosity to see what's going to happen with Nadal in on the clay court season. Dying of, dying of curiosity might be too strong. I, I just think that for him to come out and be as dominant as he has been is just will, will just be an astounding feat if it happens. It will be the, the if, if he does it again. I, I don't know how it can't be the tennis sports story of the year bar none unless Federer were to rock up and play Wimbledon and win which of course we know is not going to happen because he's not playing it it would if the Djokovic story in Australia was the story of the year Nadal's coming in and dominating the clay court season will be the tennis sports story of the year as opposed to the tennis story of the year I I just think that's I mean he's what 37 now is that right 37 years old and to, uh, 36 36 he's gonna be sorry Rob. he's gonna be 30 he's gonna be 36 uh at uh in the middle of Roland Garros okay and and by the way while we're talking about this I'll add it's certainly one of the most one of the cutest episodes in the tennis tour history of the last 10 years was when someone said that he was I don't know what the age was 33 years old, and he corrected them and said, I'm 33 and a half. Uh, you know, not unlike a five-year-old <laughs> telling you how he's really five and a half, not, not five. But uh, to be 36 years old and to, and to dominate like, as he has in the past again and win the French again is just, I mean, at that point, they should just hand him the trophy and tell him to go home. You know, they used to retire trophies after you won it three years in a row uh, or three times, and, and, and they should do that with the the, the Coupe Mousquetaire. This it's just it's just an astounding thing. And then on the WTA side, how can it how can the big story not be what Juantex going to do? I mean, she she has so owned the tour and so decisively. She's she just is clamping down. She she either she she either takes people to the woodshed or she clamps down on them when they offer resistance. And in either way, she just gets it done. And, and she is not, she's not winning by simply not missing. And she's not winning because she's got the, you know, isn't her like serve. She's not a serve bot. She's just winning. I, it, at one point when Federer was, you know, the top of his game, I would look at these, the wins that he would have. And my response was, you know, what he does is he just wins. Sometimes it's pretty, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's three sets. And then at a certain point, he had a lot of three-set matches against players. He'd win the first set, he'd lose the second, and you thought, you know, he's kind of not that interested. It's, it's, it's almost like he's demonstrated he's done it. She's not at that point, boy. She beats you 6-2 in the first first set. You you know you're going to have to work your ass off to not be beat 6-love or 6-1 in the second. And it, it's an amazing thing. I, I will say those are the two players that, I'm most curious to see what they're going to do because their arcs are are shooting upwards. Nadal, of course, has this hiccup with the uh, with the rib. And by the way, how can you count out somebody who plays a final with a fractured rib and makes a, makes a match of it uh, as he did at Indian Wells? That's a huge story. But they're both tra- they're both trending upwards. You both you expect a lot out of both of them. The, it's not as if these tournaments are theirs for the losing, far from it. But for them to be 
successful in any way close to dominating coming into this clay court season is absolutely what I'm looking to see happen or, or, or not happen as the case may be. Could any, could they get tripped up? Sure. You know, I, earlier on, I, I predicted that the tours are going to revert to the mean of there being top players who don't win all the time. That could happen now. But if you look at Sviantec, you certainly don't see that in our future. And if you look at Rafa, outside of losing the final at Indian Wells, what, what was he, 22 and one going into the final at Indian Wells? Uh, that's, that's pretty, pretty flipping dominant. So whether he'll keep it up or not, I don't know, but you're coming onto his home turf. You, you gotta, you gotta think twice before you bet against him. Sorry, I don't have any dark horses that I'm going to pull out for you. Do you? I know Sakib said that he, he's, he's got, he's got root on his radar for the play season. Yeah, I'll just give my two cents quickly, and then Matt, you can answer your two players before we wrap this up. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, there, there are layers to this conversation. Djokovic is going to be definitely a fascinating follow, what he does, because he's been out of tennis because of non-tennis reasons, right? It's not like he's injured or something. And he was arguably, you know, everyone's favorite this year to go do special things again. But uh, my conversation is going to be centered on Rude. Uh, Nadal and Djokovic will probably, you know... Uh, fight for the title. It would have been Dominic team, but I, I'm going to stay away from Dominic team right now. I think Kasper Ruud has built a small resume on clay and he's knocking that elite door. He's below Berrettini, he's below Oji Aliasim. And this is the time of the year where he can, if he can replicate his success from last year and make a quarters at French Open and challenge one of the elite players. And that's what I'm going to be keenly following. And on the women's side, I'm going to be following uh, Paula Badosa's, uh, you know, clay court graph like where she lands up and you know uh how does she back up the ranking each week so Matt what's who are your two players yeah if, if you know and you took Bedosa like Bedosa and Maria Sakari were the were the two so I'll, I'll go with Sakari that uh you know first off she made the Indian Wells final before losing to Sviantec and we remember that you know she had match point against Barbara Krachikova in the Roland Garros semis last year before losing so few, few of the top 10 on the WTA Tour are going to be more motivated at Roland Garros than Sakari will be. And, you know, she's like she's been just on the cusp uh, of breaking through. I mean, she made the U.S. Open semifinals last year. So she was one of a few, very select few players to make two major semifinals, um, Sabalenka uh, being the other. Uh, so, like, she's gotten a lot of really good results, but she's still waiting on that first major final. So, you know, among WTA players who have not yet made a first major final, she and Bedosa would, would certainly have to rate very highly. And then on the men's side, I'm going to stay in Greece. It's going to be an all-Greek uh, combination. Uh, Sakari for the WTA and Sitsipas for the men. And I already kind of gave away the store, really, in terms of explaining that, because Sitsipas's best surface is clay. Rowan Garros makes the most sense is the place where he's going to win his first major, but you have Rafa, you might have Djokovic. And then of course you have Zverev, uh, who's no slouch. And you have this uh, rising Carlos Alcaraz plus Yannick Sinner. Um, you know, so, so Sitsipas is looking at a big points drop. If he, if he loses early in Paris, there is no ATP player who faces more pressure in clay season and specifically at Roland Garros 
than Sitsipas. So it's going to be fascinating to see how he handles all of that pressure. It's going to be amazing to watch. That's true. He's he's the one who you think feels the pressure to come up with the goods at this point. I, you know, who knows? And that's where, you know, having an answer to everything that's happening around him, you know, by uh, like Alcaraz upping his game, but also, you know, and, and I know that Sitsipas did have the shoulder injury and that might have limited what he was able to do in the off season. Now, some Sitsipas fans have interacted with me on Twitter saying, you know, hey, you know, Australian Open semifinals. Uh, he's had some other really good uh, tournament results elsewhere. And like those points aren't really wrong, but if, if we're talking about, you know, competing with the best, being the best, uh, being at that top tier, you know, he has regressed since Roland Garros 2021 in that fifth set or really the last three sets against Djokovic hasn't been the same player since. And I know that health is an issue, but one part of health and how one manages a career is that, you know, it, and this is, this is the old school. And so some people might say this is a get off my lawn moment. Fine. You know, so be it. But if you're, if you take the court, you're saying that you're reasonably fit to play. And so, you know, if, if you're going to say that the injuries have gotten in the way of Sitsipas, I mean, there, there's some, there's something to that, but if, if the injuries were really limiting him, he shouldn't have taken the court. Maybe he should have played less not taking as many losses, which only served to erode his confidence and, and uh, build up his opponents. Maybe you should have taken a little bit more uh, time off from tour just to heal so that when he takes the court, he is a fully fit, fully healthy player. So, you know, th- th- like that's an important uh, tension point uh, to kind of carry into the background, but assuming that he's fully healthy now, which he seems to be, um, he needs to bring something more uh, to clay season. And uh, I think it's really the most fascinating question because, you know, and this is something I said on a Twitter spaces show at tennis with an accent last week during Miami is that, you know, Zverev there on hard courts, like Zverev is a, a, a leading contender at the hard court majors and Sitsipas doesn't seem to be likely to be as much of a hardcore contender, not that he won't have a chance, like, if, you know, if a big upset occurs, you know, the, the bracket path could certainly open up for him. That's always the case, you know, now that, uh, you know, Federer is about to retire and, and Nadal is aging out a little bit more, um, you know, but uh, given that possibility, Zverev on balance is more likely to win a hardcore major uh, before it's a passes just, just because of how they played because of how close they've come respectively. Um, so, you know, I think, I think Sitsipas has a more narrow window right now at the majors. Now I'm not talking about his full career. I'm really talking more about 2022 and 2023 in particular, that if he's going to break through in, in this year or the next, it's more likely that, that it's going to be Roland Garros for him. Whereas Varev, I think, you know, could do it in Melbourne, could do it at in New York. Um, Zverev has more pathways right now, uh, so that's also why uh, Sitsipas carries more pressure in clay season and at Roland Garros than any other ATP player. His options are more limited in the present moment. And that's a great way to wrap this up. And Matt, uh, I'll do like a 
TV miniseries kind of a thing. I have a disagreement, but let's take a disagreement to a next episode. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll come back. Uh, I mean, I, I don't totally disagree with what you're saying with Sitsipas, but you know, I'll, I'll weigh in later. So Skip, always a pleasure. Thank you very much, both of you. And, Thank you, Skip. Always great. And hopefully we can get the gang back again sometime during play or leading up to Wimbledon. Till then, thanks for listening. And uh, bye for now. And we'll be back with regular uh, Twitter spaces leading up to French Open. Thank you. Take care, Saki. You too, Matt. Nice to talk.